Part 7 of Rebels of the Red Planet by Charles Louis Fontenay. Read by Mark Nelson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Rebels of the Red Planet. 13. Brute Hennessy plodded westward through the Xanthi Desert, naked, wearing no Marsuit, his head bare to the thin, oxygen-poor Martian air. The two small moons shone in the star-spangled sky above the lone figure, casting fantastic shadows on the sands. But this was not the stupid, shambling brute Hennessy of a few months past. He walked surely and proudly, and the light of intelligence shone in his eyes. He called himself now Dark Kensington. Dark's muscular body had not regained, quite, the firmness and tone it had had before he was shot down at Solus Lacus, but he had recovered greatly from the bloated flabbiness of a few days ago. Most of that had been water in his tissues, and resumption of normal physical activity had wrung it out in short order. As he plodded through the Martian night toward Ultravirus, Dark was remembering, with something of awe, that emotional explosion within him that had occurred on his first sight of Goat Hennessy at the Canfell Hydroponic Farm. It was this sudden, overwhelming recognition that had wrung from his lips the cry, Father! At that moment memory had returned with terrible impact, and he had been overwhelmed by the re-experience of those moments when he had stood before the man he admired and loved as his father, and had seen the bitter realization of rejection by that man ridden with the point of a knife. Now he remembered it all. He remembered his childhood at Ultravirus. He remembered Adam and their experiences together. He remembered their treks through the desert at Goat Hennessy's command. He remembered his slaying of Adam and his acceptance of death at Goat's hands. He remembered that he, Dark Kensington, was Brute Hennessy somehow brought to life once before in the Icaria Desert, even as he had himself regained life a second time in the vats of the Canfell Hydroponic Farm. So Goat Hennessy was his father, apparently. And Oldbeard, the real Dark Kensington, vowed vengeance on Goat. Dark was able to view this with equanimity. He no longer felt any admiration or affection for Goat, whatever relationship might exist between them. But since he was Brute Hennessy, and thus not old enough to be the real Dark Kensington, how and why had he acquired the memories of Dark Kensington? That question remained unanswered. Phobos was setting for the first time that night when Dark reached the great hulk of Ultravirus, manipulated one of the airlocks, and entered its dark corridors. There was no light, and a test of the light switch proved that the electrical system was no longer operating. But Dark knew every inch of this place from early childhood. He felt his way through the pitch darkness to Goat Hennessy's old bedroom. Probing about in the darkness, he discovered that Goat's bed was still supplied with mattress and crumpled blankets. This surprised him somewhat, as any item of cloth on Mars had to be imported from Earth, and was far too valuable to abandon. But, apparently, these things had been left temporarily in Goat's abandonment of Ultravirus and would be picked up by truck later. Deriving a certain humorous satisfaction from taking over the master's chamber, Dark curled up on Goat's bed and went to sleep. 
He woke the next morning with the glare of the desert sunlight reflected into the room. He arose, stretched, and yawned. The room was a mess. Goat had left the bedclothing intact, but he had turned everything else upside down in packing his personal effects to leave the place. There was still water in the reservoir, an ultra-virus plumbing system was still in operation. Dark bathed. He felt ruefully at the thick stubble of beard that had overgrown his face in the past few days, but Goat had left no shaving equipment behind. Dark made his way down to the big kitchen. There were supplies of canned food there, and he found utensils and ate. He was hungry, but not ravenous, and this surprised him a little, because he had had no food since he started out afoot from the Canfell Hydroponic Farm four nights ago. But he was no hungrier than he would normally be after a night's sleep. As he ate, his eye fell on dishes stacked beside the sink. He was startled to notice that water still sparkled on them. He arose and checked them. Yes, they were still wet. There were remnants of fresh food in the garbage can. People here? camping out? Or, more likely, someone passing through the desert who had taken shelter here for the night. But he thought he would have heard the roar of a ground-car leaving. Thoughtfully, Dark finished his breakfast. It occurred to him that perhaps some members of the Phoenix had taken refuge here after fleeing Mars City. But most of them did not even know of the existence of Ultravirus, much less its location. At any rate, there was no reason to assume that anyone who happened to be here would be unfriendly to him, in case they met by chance. He saw no reason to worry about it. Finishing breakfast, Dark went down to the storeroom and picked out three Mars suits, for Old Beard, Happy, and Shadow. There was a large-sized suit there that he thought might accommodate Happy's bulk, but he wondered how Shadow, with his flat build, was going to manage one. Nakedness felt quite natural to Dark, especially since he remembered his identity as Brute. But it occurred to him that it would look peculiar to anyone he might meet before leaving Ultravirus, or for that matter, on his way back to the Canfell Hydroponic Farm. So he donned a Mars suit himself, leaving off the helmet. Carrying the other three Mars suits, he went down the corridor to the motor pool. Dark remembered that Goat had always kept four ground cars on hand. There were three here now, all in advanced stages of dismantlement. At one of them, a small figure in black tunic and loose trousers was bending over, head and arms plunged into the bowels of the engine. Dark hesitated. He had found his intruder, perhaps a traveler who had run into engine trouble in the desert and had fortuitously been near enough to take shelter here while making repairs. But again, there was no reason to anticipate unfriendliness. Carrying his Mars suits, Dark walked up to the ground car, overhearing a muffled bit of profanity as he approached. The unfortunate mechanic evidently heard his footsteps because he was greeted with, I wish to Phobos you'd stay down here and try to help me, instead of spending all your time snooping around this deserted shack." The voice was muffled, but it was definitely feminine and definitely irritated. Dark grinned and replied drolly, "'I'm sorry, but this is the first time you've asked me to help you.' With an audible gasp the woman disentangled herself, in dangerous haste, from the ground-car engine and faced Dark. 
they stared at each other in mutual shocked recognition. There was dark Kensington, bearded, his arms full of Mars-suits, and there was Maya Kara Nome, sleeves rolled up, her lovely face streaked with grease. Dark's jaw dropped. Maya's lips formed a round, astonished O. Oh. Then, with a squeal, she hurled herself on him, throwing her arms around his neck. Dark staggered back, overwhelmed by Mars-suits, an abundance of wriggling femininity, and a babble of happy and completely unintelligible words gushed against his bearded cheek. He managed to disentangle himself by the dual process of dropping the Mars-suits and holding Maya forcibly at arm's length. She gazed up into his face, her own awed and radiant, and was able to reduce her own words to connected sentences. "'You are not here,' she said positively. "'You can't be. You are dead. I saw you killed. You must be one of the ghosts of Ultravirus.' She wriggled free and threw her arms around his neck again, announcing happily, "'But you're a solid, comfortable ghost, and I love you.' Again Dark managed to get her at arm's length and looked down seriously into her face. "'Did I hear you correctly?' he asked soberly. "'Did you say you love me?' "'I did, and I mean it. Oh, Dark, how I mean it!' He pulled her to him. He kissed her gravely, then he held her close in his arms while she rested her head contentedly against his shoulder. "'What,' he asked at last, "'are you doing here tinkering with a ground-car?' "'Newell and I were on our way to Mars City by helicopter when it failed and crashed,' she explained. "'This was the only place near enough for us to make it afoot, and the Mars-suit radios don't have the range to call for help.' We've been here more than two weeks now, trying to repair these ground-cars." She looked at the machine she had been working on and shook her head ruefully. "'I don't think any of them can be fixed,' she said. Newell, it turns out, doesn't know a damn thing about machinery, but I was taught a good deal about mechanics when I was trained as a terrestrial agent. Even with three ground-cars to supply parts, there are some things missing that I don't think I can jury-rig substitutes for." She turned back to Dark. "'But you're dead!' she exclaimed. "'I know you are, because we carried your body with us to the Canfell Hydroponic Farm. How in space can you be here, alive and kissing, when you made such a beautiful corpse?' Dark explained the circumstances to her, how he had awakened in the vat, how he had been able to breathe under water how the sight of Goat Hennessy had revived in him the memory of his identity as brute, how he had been able to walk across the desert without a Mars-suit. "'If you're Brute Hennessy, I know why you aren't dead,' she said, when he had finished. "'We fell in with a party of Martians on our way here, and they told me about certain embryonic changes they made on you and Adam before Goat kidnapped your mothers and brought them to Ultravirus.' Krill, he's the Martian I talked to, said that these alterations not only permit you to live in a free Martian environment, but give you extraordinary regenerative powers. They must be extraordinary, if they permit me to come to life again after being stabbed in the heart and having my belly burned out with a heat-gun, observed Dark. That's because your tissues aren't dependent on oxygen-carbon combustion, 
explained Maya. According to Krill, when oxygen is no longer available to you, your cells utilize direct solar energy. That would prevent your tissues from dying while the damaged area of your body is under repair." She looked at him in sudden, awed realization. "'It would seem, darling, that you're virtually indestructible,' she said. Dark laughed. "'Perhaps so,' he said. But I don't hanker to experiment along those lines any more than necessary. Dying is a very unpleasant experience, even if I do come to life again." "'Oh, Dark,' said Maya, remembering. "'I'd like for Quirrell to see you, and maybe he'll give us some more information. They came back here three days ago, and for some reason have just been hanging around outside, under the walls. Let me get on a Mars suit, and I'll take you to him.' Here, put on one of these," suggested Dark, picking up the one he had selected for Old Beard. Maya wriggled into it. The Martians, she said, were on the other side of Ultravirus, so they left the motor pool and walked down one of the long corridors together, Maya clinging to Dark's arm with one hand and carrying her Mars helmet under her other arm. They were halfway across the big building when Newell Eli appeared around a corner about thirty feet ahead of them. He stopped, staring, at the sight of Maya's companion. "'Maya,' he began as they neared him, "'who?' Then he recognized Dark. With a terrified yelp, Newell turned and raced back down the side corridor at top speed. They heard the clack-clack of his heels on the stone floor, fading in the distance. Dark and Maya stopped and looked at each other. It must have been quite a shock to him, too, to see you risen from the dead," she said. I don't believe he's as happy to see you as I was, Dark. No, his joy seemed considerably mitigated," replied Dark gravely. But, Maya, this raises a rather serious question, which hadn't occurred to me before, in the happiness of our reunion. What's that, darling? You're a terrestrial agent, and as such, you put me under arrest. It's true you tried to free me later. But didn't you tell me that night that you were engaged to marry this man, Newell Eli?" "'Yes,' she admitted in a small voice. "'But—I haven't had the pleasure of meeting the gentleman before,' continued Dark, still in his same grave tone. "'But you and he were going back to Mars City together, and for some reason, it occurs to me that you and he planned to be married as soon as you could get there." Maya was somewhat stunned at this evidence of mind-reading. "'That's true,' she said in a very small voice. "'Now,' said Dark, "'you tell me that you love me. You must admit that the question raised by this is rather serious. Does this declaration of love, which I assure you is reciprocated completely, imply a radical change in your past course of action? Or, since you're still a terrestrial agent, can I expect to be arrested again as a preliminary to your joining Mr. Eli in the holy state of matrimony?" Maya looked up into his face and burst out laughing. "'I may have put it jokingly,' protested Dark, a little taken aback, "'but I'm serious, Maya.' "'I know you are,' she giggled. "'That's what makes it so funny.' Answering you in the same vein, Mr. Kensington, I don't intend to put you in double jeopardy." Dark raised his eyebrows quizzically. 
I arrested you and you were killed resisting arrest, she explained mischievously. I've discharged that duty as a terrestrial agent, so I don't think I'm either required or entitled to arrest you again. And, as for the other, well, I am a little sorry for Newell, but I do love you, and I won't marry Newell since you're alive. But I can't marry you, Dark." Dark was stunned at this. "'Why not, Maya? You mean because you're a terrestrial agent?' "'No, it isn't that. I'm planning to resign as an agent as soon as I get back to Mars City, and that wouldn't stop me anyway. The reason I can't marry you is simply that you haven't asked me." Dark laughed, a rollicking, relieved laugh, and swept her into his arms. "'Maya, darling, I ask you now,' he exclaimed, "'will you marry me?' "'Yes, Dark,' she answered demurely. She leaned back in the circle of his arms and looked up into his face, seriously. "'Whither thou goest, I will go,' she said, very quietly. "'If you're a rebel, Dark, I'll be a rebel, too. I want to be with you and help you in whatever you do." 14. Dark and Maya sat with their backs against the wall of Ultravirus, and Creel squatted before them, towering huge above them. A little distance away, the other three Martians were grouped, playing some sort of game, doing some sort of work, or participating in some sort of joint demonstration. Dark could not be sure which. Quill boomed out a long, rolling sentence, and Maya broke into laughter. She turned to Dark and translated. He said he didn't understand why I'm wearing a helmet when you aren't. I explained that I have to wear a helmet to breathe, and he said that, since you and I are alike, it appears that we dress alike. So you see, darling, even the Martians recognize that we're made for each other. Dark shook his head in wonderment. No human has ever been able to figure out Martian thinking processes, and I doubt that one ever will, he remarked. This is the Martian who explained to you the physiological structure that permits me to live without oxygen, and yet he asks a question like that. There is one thing that puzzles me, said Maya curiously. Without a helmet you can't use your Mars suit heater and you said you walked here naked. But the temperature out here right now is well below freezing. Aren't you cold?" "'No,' answered Dark. "'I get cold in temperatures that are uncomfortable to anyone else when I'm in a dome or a building and breathing. But out here, when I'm not breathing, I'm aware of temperature changes, but they don't cause me any discomfort.' It must be that switching to direct utilization of solar power alters my reactions to temperature." "'Well,' said Maya, "'I can understand that utilization of solar power when you're in the sunshine, but how can you keep operating when you're in shadow, or at night, and not breathing?' "'I don't know. Maybe Krill does.' Maya asked the Martian and relayed his answer to Dark. "'Krill says that you store excess energy in the tissues, very much as the Martians store oxygen. In a sense, direct sunlight's your generator, and it charges your batteries for power when it isn't operating. Now, Dark, why don't you ask him anything you want to know about your origin, and I'll act as your translator?" All right, agreed Dark, but first 
It was among Martians that I awoke when I returned to life the first time in the Icaria Desert. That's pretty far away, and I understand Martians have a weird sort of sympathetic communication among themselves. Does he know anything about how I got there?" Maya talked with Krill and translated. Krill is one of the Martians I saw come by here and pick up your body the morning after Goat killed you and threw your body out in the desert. Krill says they recognize you from your genetic pattern, and don't ask me how they did this, as being the one they had completed embryonic alteration on years before. So they picked you up and took you with them to give you a chance to regenerate and revive. But how and why did I turn up after my revival with Dark Kensington's memories? He says they gave you a memory pattern by a deep telepathic process, answered Maya after talking with Krill. Because your memory pattern as brute was of no value to you in meeting a new environment. It seems that there was some blockage in the operation of your brain as brute, because of a slight fault in the embryonic alteration and they corrected that before you revived. But why Dark Kensington's memory pattern? asked Dark. It turned out to be a valuable one for me, but I've met the real Dark Kensington since then, and he's a much older man. Why did they choose his memory pattern? Maya talked with Krill. He says names mean very little to them, she said then. That's something I learned as a child that Martians often interchange their names, and the names evidently refer to a state of experience and being rather than to a specific individual. He says that the memory pattern they chose to give you was that of your father." Dark stared at her, stunned. "'Then,' he said slowly, "'Old Beard is my father. I should have known. I think I felt it.' I'm not surprised if you did," said Maya. From what Krill tells me, Dark, this prenatal alteration they performed on you gave you even more extensive powers than we realized. He says that you have extraordinary extrasensory ability, if you would only make an effort to use it. Oh, I do, do I?" murmured Dark thoughtfully. He looked over at the other Martians, seated in a circle in the morning sunshine. They were taking turns tossing some small polygons, and evidently the object of whatever they were doing lay in the way the polygons fell. Dark felt a sudden surge of power in his brain. He concentrated it, he focused it, and one of the polygons rose slowly from the ground and drifted into the air above the Martians' heads. Dark could feel the strength that went out and raised the polygon, like an invisible extension of himself. Then he felt another force seize the polygon, and it was drawn back firmly and without hesitation to its former place. Dark turned his head back to look at Creel's huge eyes, and at once he was in mental contact with the Martian. Creel was laughing at him. There was no change of expression on Creel's face, but in his mind was the atmosphere of high humor. Creel's thoughts came to him without words, in no language silently but clearly. You have not practiced your power. Experience will be necessary before you can compete with the simplest effort of one of our race." Dark turned to Maya. "'He's right,' said Dark. "'I do have extrasensory powers, but they'll need some development.' "'I know,' said Maya. 
The telepathic voltage in the atmosphere must be very high right now, because even I sensed your effort in lifting that object, and I understood Creel's communication to you." Maya and Dark took their leave of Creel and went back to Ultravirus. As they did so, Creel and the other Martians arose and began to drift away into the desert, as though they had had a mission in staying here, which was now accomplished. "'I hope you know something about mechanics,' said Maya, as they walked down the corridor together. "'Because if you don't, it looks like we're stuck here for a while. At least I am, unless you can run one of those ground-cars with psychokinetic power.' "'No, apparently I'm not that good at it yet,' said Dark. "'Maybe I could teleport in any parts you need.' No, wait! I just remembered something. Come with me." They turned off into a side corridor, found stairs, and climbed to the top floor of the building. There they followed another corridor until Dark stopped and opened a door. It was the door to a small airlock. Dark led Maya through it into a huge room. A helicopter stood in its center. "'Go did leave it here!' exclaimed Dark joyfully. I'd forgotten that he had this. He must have just packed the most necessary things when he left the place, planning to send trucks and a crew back and clean it out later at his leisure. Now if this copter's only in good flying shape, we're set." He checked the machine over. Everything was in order. "'How do we get it out of here?' asked Maya, curiously, looking around the room. "'That little airlock's too small for a copter to go through it.' The roof rolls back," said Dark. Put on your helmet, and I'll show you. Maya donned her Mars helmet. Dark went to the wall and pulled a switch. Nothing happened. I forgot, he said. The electricity's off. Well, let's try something. Dark concentrated his mind intensely on the movable ceiling. For a moment there was resistance. Then, very slowly, it began to open. A crack appeared in its center, and the air of the room hissed out with the swish of a minor tempest. After that it was easier. The crack widened swiftly and the roof rolled back to the walls, leaving the room open to the heavens. "'All we have to do now is to climb into it and go,' said Dark with satisfaction. "'You fill the fuel tanks, and I'll run down to the motor pool and pick up those other two Mars suits. One of them is for my friend, Happy who is very fat, and he couldn't wear either of the emergency suits in the copter." Maya uncoiled the hose from one of the fuel drums in the room and poked it into the copter's tank. Dark left the room, walked down the corridor, and descended the stairs. He made his way to the motor pool. Maya was wearing one of the three Mars suits he had brought down, but the other two were still lying on the floor. He picked them up and started back. He was walking down the first-floor corridor, carrying the Marsuits, when there crashed in on his mind a terrifying, silent scream. Help! Dark stopped, appalled. It took him a moment to realize that he was still standing in the corridor. It took him a moment to realize that he actually had heard nothing. The corridor stretched away ahead of him, dim and dusty. There was no movement in it, no sound. It was utterly silent. He stood there in a dim, dusty corridor, in waiting silence, holding two Marsuits under his arms. Help! It was a cry that shrieked in his mind, reverberated in his mind, touching nothing around him, 
touching not the silent corridor. Maya! Dark's mind went out to her, rode up on swift wings to the room above, where she had waited for his return. He was there, in that room, and there was the helicopter. There was no Maya there. But there were figures in the copter, moving. He was in the copter, and there was Maya, struggling and writhing, as Newell Eli, in a furious concentration of savage energy, bound her into one of its seats with a length of rope. Dark touched her mind, and her mind grasped his, desperately. "'Dark! He followed us up here, and hid until you left. He crept up behind me and seized me. Hurry, Dark! He's taking me away!' "'Hurry! Down those corridors, up those steps, when Newell already was sliding into the pilot's seat of the copter?' Frantically, Dark grasped at his only chance of reaching her in time. Teleportation. He clamped down with his mind on himself. With a frenzied burst of strength he sought to lift himself bodily, to be there in the copter with them. He put every ounce of energy he possessed into the effort. And he failed. He was standing in the dim, dusty corridor, two Mars suits under his arm, straining futilely toward a place he could not reach. And now he actually heard, with his ears, the muted vibration above him as the copter's engines roared to life. Dark started running. He dropped the Mars suits and ran down the corridor. He leaped up the stairs, two and three at a time. Breathless, his heart pounding, he staggered down the upper corridor and impatiently went through the seemingly interminable process of negotiating the airlock. He emerged into the big room. It was empty. The ceiling was open to the Martian sky, the sunlight poured into the roofless room. In the sky a small teetering object rose and moved away from Ultravirus, its blades whirring a sparkling circle in the thin air. Dark reached out to it with his mind, and again he was in the copter. Newell sat tensely at the controls guiding it. Maya was in the other seat, her arms bound down by her sides her expression agonized. Newell was aware of Dark's mental presence. Maya sensed it, and her mind turned toward him. "'Dark! Dark! What can we do? I should have been watching for him. I should have known, after he saw us together, that he would do something.' "'Dark! It was my fault, Maya. I shouldn't have left you alone. I just didn't consider him a factor to be reckoned with, and I should have known better.' Maya. What can we do?" Newell turned to Maya, and his face was bitter and sullen. His brown eyes were flat with anger. "'You treacherous witch! I should have known better than to trust you after that trick of trying to help Kensington escape. I wanted to give you a chance, because I thought that, with him dead, you might have recovered from your madness,' he said. A change came over his face, a mixture of fear, disbelief, and utter lack of comprehension. "'He was dead,' said Newell, a hysterical note underlying his tone. "'I saw him. You saw him dead, too, didn't you, Maya? How could he be back there with you?' Maya's only answer was a defiant smile. "'There's some explanation for this,' said Newell, more positively. "'I don't know what it is, but I'll find it. That man back there isn't Dark Kensington.' because Kensington's dead. Maya, 
I promise you, I'm going to find out what the answer is, but first I'm going to make sure that you don't cause me any more trouble." Dark touched Maya's mind. Maya, I'm going to try something here. He moved back. He was outside the copter, near it, keeping pace with it as it flew. It was tilted slightly forward, falling forward through the sky at the pull of its blades. Dark seized the copter with his mind. He tried to drag it back. It hesitated. It quivered. Then it jerked forward and went on. He felt his mental grasp slipping from it. Suddenly he was completely in the big room at Ultravirus, the room with its roof open to the sky. He could no longer be in it. He could no longer touch Maya's mind. He tried. He reached out again. But he failed. He was where he was. He realized he was almost exhausted. The tremendous drain of his efforts on his energy told on him at last. He no longer had the strength to try any more, and Newell and Maya were gone away from him into the Martian sky. Wearily, he turned back and went through the airlock, down the corridor, and down the stairs. There was nothing more he could do now. Newell undoubtedly would take Maya to Mars City. And then? Maya would refuse to marry Newell now, and Dark doubted that Newell could force her. What Newell would do with her, he did not know. Probably some sort of confinement, eventually perhaps a trial. But Newell had no ground or reason to do her any real harm. He would have to try to get to Maya as soon as he could and that meant intensification of his efforts. But there was only one course he could hope to follow successfully, and that was the course he had planned when he started out for Ultravirus. Only now he could speed it up. He had to have some rest. Then he would pick up three Marsuits and walk back across the desert to the Canfell Hydroponic Farm. End of Chapter 14